Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. Hey everybody, today on In a Mississippi Minute is wow. As a guy that writes and records music for a living, I am in awe of my next guest and the mark he has left and continues to do so on rock and roll history. From being a founding member of bands like the Ides of March and Survivor, he also has written and co-written songs for Leonard Skinner, REO Speedwagon, Sammy Hagar, and the list goes on and on for other great artists. 38 specials, three biggest hits, Rockin' Into the Night, Caught Up in You, and Hold On Loosely, and even The Eye of the Tiger come from the wonderful soul of this one and only. Please welcome singer, songwriter, music, musician, producer, the legend Jim Peterick. Hey, hey, Jimbo, how you doing? Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's me? That's you. I can keep going. Do you want me to just keep going for a no, while? No, no, <laughs> no, man, my ego, my head wouldn't get through the door. Uh, <laughs> No, that's really nice. Uh, it, you know, it's, I've been blessed. You know, it, it's all about following your heart. And, uh, you know, it sounds corny and all that, but I knew early on that I had to be in music full time. I never had a paper route, never did anything but music. Yeah. I've been very lucky. You know, I had the support of parents and, and, and very early on found my band, The Eyes of March. And those are my brothers to this day. You know, I'm very lucky. Right. Well, well, for me as well, you mentioned your parents and the support. You know, a lot of a lot of parents don't love what what uh, when kids their kids are growing up and and they're not going to be doctors or lawyers or you know or physicists or whatever. And and a, and a regular world, regular job. My parents were the same way. They they actually pushed me at my darkest hours to continue on. And from an early age, they they saw that that was what I needed to be doing. I love hearing that. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Growing up. Obviously, your parents were big mentors. What were some of your early influences as a kid? My dad was one of my influences. He was a uh, what I call a weekend warrior. I think if times would have been different, he would have been a star saxophone player. But, you know, growing up in the Depression, he had to take a job where he could get one. And uh, and that was at, you know, the, the phone company uh, in, in Chicago where he uh, worked the lines. I just didn't realize. But on the weekends, he would let loose with his band, the Hi-Hatters, and, you know, play the polka circuit and weddings and you name it. And I used to tag along. And, 
he was my hero, and he was brilliant. Didn't read a word of music, uh, was just a natural musician, played by ear, played violin, played concertina, you name it. So he was my first influence. But, you know, aside from that, it, it was Elvis Presley. You know, I was five years old, four years old, watching him from the, the waist up on Ed Sullivan, because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have shown from the waist down. Uh, I had two older sisters who were both very, very musical, and they brought back the little 45s. And, you know, and this guy named Elvis Presley, man, with Heartbreak Hotel and uh, Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, I, I was mesmerized. And when I saw him at Ed Sullivan, it, it sealed the deal. Well, you know, you look, you're, you're mentioning people that obviously had a direct correlation to uh, Mississippi, which is obviously the theme behind this show. And uh, obviously Elvis, I mean, my mom even, Elvis even played at her, at her high school in Clarksville, Mississippi when she was a kid. <laughs> and it was amazing just to hear her say, so nonchalantly say, oh yeah, Elvis played there. You know, <laughs> and, and she wasn't a, that big of a fan of Elvis. She tells me later, she goes, I really liked him, but she was into other stuff. And that, that's interesting coming from a Clarksville, Mississippi native, but also the Beatles and their influence from uh, by way of Mississippi is well documented in the Delta Blues. There's this direct line I've always felt from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta and back that musically there was this amazing respect and also this just, I mean, this common thread that was weaved, you know, a long time ago. And you've stayed a Chicago boy. Uh, I love that. You know, I toured Bob Seger for a while, and he stayed Detroit. I couldn't wait to come home from Nashville and come back to the Delta and, and proclaim it as my home again. Uh, just staying home, uh, has, how has that influenced your music and just sort of grounded you as a human being? Well, everybody asks me, you know, why didn't you move to L.A. or Nashville? or You know what? I, I, it didn't feel like me. It just didn't feel like me. You know, opportunity is where you find it, really. They, you know, there's all this quote-unquote opportunity in the, the music hubs, but if, it, if you're not feeling it, you're not going to do your best work. I, I feel very grounded, like you said, in my hometown of Chicago. Uh, family, friends, uh, it's, everything is, you know, it, it's where you, where you grew up. It's, it's your roots, and it's hard to rip those roots. I'd rather take a trip to, to Nashville or to New York or to L.A., and then, then live someplace that doesn't inspire me. And I don't know what it is. It might be in the Lake Michigan water or the pan pizza or the Cubs and socks. I have no idea, but it's, it's there. I love it. I love it. I love it. We're talking to legendary rock and roll uh, supremacy, the legend, uh, Jim Peterick. He is at his home in Chicago. Or are you at your home in Michigan today? Uh, I just came back from Michigan yesterday. Uh, I'm back in, in Chicagoland, uh, back in the studio. I'm taking a break from a wonderful writing session with Mr. Dennis DeYoung, right. former lead singer of Sticks, uh, towering talent, and, and he yeah. he lives like three two blocks from me, you know. And yet, this is the first time we really got together after all these years of being uh, friends and competitors, you know, yeah. on the road in the studio. Always had a uh, you know kind of an edge together, but we always were dear friends. <laughs> but now we're uh, making an album. You know, it's just uh, inc- incredible full circle. 
Well, I was blessed enough to be at your house while you were working on one of those tracks and uh, and just listening to you play guitar. I mean, you were on the guitar at that point. You've got two studios in your house. I didn't know which one I, I, I felt like uh, recording in first because they were both awesome. And, and your story behind two stu- uh, stu- having two studios, I remember you telling me what? Well, basically, uh, the second one, uh, when there's a flood in the basement, we got rid of the ping-pong table. <laughs> we took the insurance money and, and built a studio. Of course, I might have put a few few, few yeah. uh, grand onto, onto the studio uh, <laughs> bill, but uh, it became Colin's studio. My 28-year-old son, Colin, uh, made it his uh, studio. We called it Lennon's Den because our, our affinity for John Lennon and right. his legacy and work. Uh, so, yeah, it's like now, you know, Colin is, is out of the house and he has his own much bigger studio <laughs> in Brookfield, Illinois, uh, which is just an amazing studio. So now the downstairs is my um, tracking room because right. it's a nice, nice live, live room for drums and stuff. Then we take it upstairs uh, and we do the mixing and the sweetening and all that stuff. So it's a lot of fun. I, I call this house the world's biggest man cave. Yeah, it is. It is. And speaking of man caves, your walls are graced with some of the most amazing guitars. My favorite guitars are the ones I purchased as a little kid. So in the, they were in the late 70s, early, mid-80s. And into the early 90s, I was, you know, buying guitars, and I still love them the most to this day. But I enjoyed so much getting free guitars and, like, stacks of them. I mean, there was probably a point where I quit counting and started giving them to friends. But you, on the other hand, said, no, no, no. I wanted to play only what I wanted to play. And you have, I call it the... I don't know how many walls of guitars, but tell, tell our listeners. We're talking to Jim Peterick, uh, and Jim, tell our listeners about some of these walls because I was I was I was like I didn't want to touch anything. I was too afraid. And, and you should be. <laughs> I, I, I just love my uh, my collection. Well, it's not like I started out to be a, a guitar collector when I was thirteen. Just that every time I bought a new guitar, I forgot to sell the old one. Right, right, and uh, <laughs> couldn't couldn't part with it. So I buy only guitars that I want to play, that I love. I don't care what the the market is. But fortunately, uh, for me, the market's followed my passion. And if I if I, if I really wanted something, it turns out it, it, it turned out to be a very good investment. I really was into custom color uh, Stratocasters and Jazzmasters and Jaguars, just because when the Ventures were playing them, I was the kid in, in the audience going, "Oh my God, that's what I want to be." Right. I want to wear a shark skin suit, uh, suit and do the steps with the with the custom colored jaguars, you know. So that became a, a passion for me. And then, of course, the market took off, and everybody realized how cool these guitars were. So it's always you follow your passions, and sometimes you actually find yourself with some good investments. Well, even the one that I that I uh, coined, and apparently it was an inside joke from the past. Your first guitar that looked like a toilet seat, correct? Yeah. yeah, it's it's the uh, you 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 said it right. Uh, of course, I, I love it. And I was 11 years old, and, and under the tree there was this odd looking case. The, the case was as oddly shaped as the guitar. And uh, I had wanted a Les Paul Junior, but my dad, in his wisdom, um, knew a guy who knew a guy who got this deal on this uh, guitar made in Italy called a Wanzre. It had an aluminum neck and a fiberglass body, and it sounded like a toilet seat. That, that, that was the sad thing. But, you know, now they're collectible, and my dad was right all along. 
Yeah, well, your dad is going to be always right. We are with rock and roll legend Jim Peterick. You are in a Mississippi Minute. Stay tuned. There's a whole lot more coming. We'll be right back. What is it? Super Talk Mississippi, number one in the Magnolia State for news, weather, sports, and talk that matters to you. Don't you forget it. Super Talk Mississippi, the Super Talk app, and supertalk.fm. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Hey everybody, this is Steve Azar, and we are back inside of Mississippi Minute. I am with a new friend of mine that I've just, uh, I just admire so much. Not only by the music that he has coined and, and penned and created, but just getting to know him as a human being and realizing that uh, it, it just as I've always known that the hardest working people with incredible talent uh, that stay grounded uh, win in the end. And this is no... Uh, different from my guest Jim Peterick. Jim, uh, I want you to take us back to the creation of the Ides of March. Uh, just, you know, take our listeners on that journey because that was sort of your bit, first bit of uh, taste of success, correct? Exactly, yeah. The Ides of March, we started, um, uh, actually we were called the Shondells. Uh, I, I named that band after Troy Shondell, who had a, a big hit I like called This Time. But then we were just about to put out our first release on the Parrot label called you wouldn't listen literally the records were being pr- pressed and on, on wls we heard uh right. robert saying here's a new one from tommy james and shondells it's called hanky panky <laughs> and we go oh boy we got we got to get a new name real quick <laughs> and uh at all the eyes of march we we're all in uh, a junior or sophomore uh literature in high school we we're reading julius caesar and bob Brooklyn said, you know what? Here's our name. It's the day that Julius Caesar was to be killed. Beware the Ides of March. Holy mackerel, we got our name. Wow. And, you know, way better name than the Shondells, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Uh, anyway, uh, we, they repressed the record. It came out. It went to number seven on the Chicago Silver Dollar Survey. And WLS was like a huge, still is, a huge 50,000-watt right. station. So that song spread all over all over uh, the Midwest, and even got to Dick Clark. And uh, Dick Clark spun You Wouldn't Listen for one of those those dance dance-a-thons. And, right. You know, and he announced it. I still have the announcement of new from the Ides of March, You Wouldn't Listen. And I'm 15 years old, you know. I go, hey, man, this must be easy, you know. <laughs> uh, we were just, and, and we were on the road. We went on the road. Our parents uh, signed off, and we went all over the south. I don't know if we hit uh, Mississippi, but I'll tell you, we hit Florida, and um, that was just amazing. We were playing clubs all over Daytona Beach. We we opened up for the Almond Brothers, who at that time were called the Almond Joys. Uh, that was even before they You're formed kidding. the Almond Yeah, I didn't know that. We, we saw these guys playing, and we go, we got to work on our act. These guys are amazing. <laughs> the Almonds, we knew they were destined for big things. And when when a vehicle broke in 1970, we were touring all over the South again, this time with the Almond Brothers Band. 
I'll never forget playing the the warehouse in New Orleans. We're in, in the back. I, it, they call it a dressing room, but it's more like a you know a closet of some kind. Right, a big closet. I know those closets. Uh, and and Dwayne was was jamming, and uh, he had just changed his strings. And I go, "What do you what do you change your strings for?" He goes, "Oh man, they're yeah, they're almost a week old." I said, "A week old? Mine are four months old." <laughs> so I took the strings and I, I wrapped them up and I restrung my guitar the next day with his strings. Come on. <laughs> That is real. There, there weren't real. any string endorsements back then, probably, or people didn't, nope. or, or whether. <laughs> I said, aren't those going to be going out of tune, Dwayne? And he goes, oh, no, it'll be fine. Well, that whole first three songs, he was tuning that guitar, man. Yeah, you knew. <laughs> you knew. You knew. I, I love was, it. I was chuckling. And, uh, <laughs> but we had some great times. Talking to Jim Peterick, we're going to talk about, I want to tell, uh, let our listeners in on the story of Sylvester Stallone calling you and the song that you ended up pinning for him, I just, I just love this story. If you could share it with us, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Survivor. Uh, by the way, I, I left the band in '96, uh, but I'll tell you, the times we had leading up to there were just irreplaceable. And now we had two albums out, and the first one came out in 1980. It was just called Survivor, uh, and it had the girl on the cover. It looked like. Kim Basinger, right, and, and uh, maybe, maybe it was. I don't know. There's some controversy there, <laughs> but and then we had another album called Premonition, both on the Scotty Brothers. Neither of them, you know, uh, tore the world apart. And we were on the road doing gigs. Uh, we opened up for uh, Jefferson Starship and uh, you know Rick Emmett and, and his band. Uh, just a bunch of um, uh, triumph is the band I was trying to think of. Uh, but still, we, we weren't selling through. We weren't selling through. Then out of the blue, and I was kind of, you know, kind of down, like, well, what, what is this going to, what, what is it going to take, you know? And I come home one day in my house and, and play the answer machine. I, I click the answer machine, and, and I hear a couple of messages, and I hear, hey, yo, Jim, give me a call. It's Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> and I, 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 I was like, no, no, it, it ain't Stallone. Someone's putting me on, right. you know? Played it for my wife Karen. She yeah. said, "Damn, that sounds like you better get back to him." <laughs> Called him back. It was very, still very tentative. What I was going to hear on the other line, and I said, uh, "Hi, this is Jim Peterick. Is this really Sylvester Stallone?" And he goes, "Hey, yeah, Jim, call me Sly." You know, <laughs> and and I'm going, I'm like pinching myself because kid from Berwyn, you know, talking to my hero, and he tells me to call him Sly. Yeah. You know? He says, uh, well, you know, I love your band. So that's the sound I want for my next movie, Rocky Three. I want that street sound, something for the kids, something with a pulse. I love you guys. You sound like you're raw. You're from the streets. I go, if you only knew. But no, <laughs> yeah. I say, yeah, we do have that sound. You know, um, and he said, can you help me out? Can you write a song? I don't want to use that Gonna Fly Now song again. It's good, you know, but I want something for the kids, you know. And I was just taking it all in, t- scribbling notes. I still have the pad where I scribble the notes. And he said, I'm going to send you the first three minutes of the movie. Right. And it's the montage. The first three minutes, right. And we're talking yep. to Jim Peterick, legendary rock and roller, uh, incredible songwriter, uh, good friend of mine now. I, I can say that. And I'm in awe of our of, of him as an artist. But and, uh, J- Jim, Jimbo, uh, which Rocky was this for? This is for Rocky Three. Okay. That's the one with Mr. T., and uh, yeah. you know the Rocky, the first Rocky was amazing, a groundbreaking album. He became my hero right then. Second movie, you know, not not as much, but very good. 
but he needed something to kick kick the whole franchise in the butt, you know? Right. Send us the first three minutes of the movie. I went out and rented a Betamax Pro about the size of a microwave, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, a big microwave, too. <laughs> and uh, FedEx arrived, and, and there was this big old cassette, a huge cassette. I called up Frankie Sullivan, the guitar player survivor. We, we watched the first three minutes, and it, it was electrifying. You know, Mr. T was rising up looking all bad, and... Stallone was kind of getting soft doing MasterCard commercials and kind of resting on his laurels, you know. And But there was one thing that confused me and Frankie, and that is underneath the action, there was already a song, and it was Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And it was working like a champ, man. Bump, 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 another one bites the dust. Right, you know, right. I go, wait a minute. What, what the? So I called up Sylvester, hey, Sly, what's going on here? You know, by this time, I called him Sly, you know, and he says, oh, yeah, well, we couldn't get the publishing rights to another one bites the dust, so it gets up to you guys. And uh, <laughs> I go, no problem, no problem. So we, we turned the sound down, and I had my Les Paul around my neck, and I just started going, you know, that telegraphic riff. And then I'm watching the punches throw it, and I'm trying to time the Come on. Yeah. Come on. Bum, bum, bum. I love that. Yeah. And there's that one beat that goes be- it, that's two beats behind and it screws up every drummer that <laughs> that thinks he knows the song. <laughs> but that's cuz I was trying to time a punch. Oh man, that's and, awesome. Uh, so in in 3 days we had the song fourth fifth day we we recorded it at a local studio. We cut that thing so fast we didn't even know how good it was. We sent it to Stallone and he absolutely went berserk. He said, "Oh, you guys really did it, man." You guys don't know it yet, but this is going to be a huge song. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so he uses the demo in the movie. That's how tight the the, uh, yeah. the schedule was. So there's actually two versions. A lot of people don't know it because they're so close. But you know what they say. It's so easy to cut the demo because you're all fired up and you know what you're doing. And the sounds may be bad, you know, in the studio. But then, you know, we wanted to recut it for the album a couple months later and it took us uh, almost three weeks to cut the song that we cut in two days you know on the bad equipment right right? and the thing went to number one stayed there for for five weeks on billboard suddenly we're on the road with ario speedwagon and we're looking around going did this really happen to us yeah we are with uh Rock and roll legend Jim Peterick, you are in a Mississippi Minute. What a story. We're going to continue on a little bit more on Survivor next. Uh, Jim, I've got a question to ask you. Uh, lead us into yeah. the, I, need you, need us, I need you, if I can get this right, to lead us into the break with, well, Mississippi is the birthplace of American music, and, and we celebrate that. Uh, lead us into the break. You get to play DJ. Give me either Jimmy Rogers or Charlie Pride. Well, Jimmy Rogers, I, I love them both, but on my jukebox downstairs, I have a 53 Seaver. I got about three sides, uh, three different 45s by, by Jimmy Rogers. All right, so that's what we're going to play. We'll be right back. We're with Jim Peterick. I'm Steve Azar. You're in Mississippi Minute. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. I told him over again to quit drinking whiskey, lay off of that gin. He's in the jailhouse now. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Steve Azar on Facebook.com Steve Azar Live and listen to all my music, Steve Azar and Steve Azar and the King's Men, wherever you download or stream.
It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Now I look into your eyes, I can see forever, the search is over, you were with me all the while. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. We are rocking into the Mississippi Minute. Uh, I'm so honored to have as my guest the great Jim Peterick. Uh, he is by way of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we talk, You talked about WLS. Uh, Jim, I actually grew up listening to w, WLS at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It would kick on down in the Delta. And that, that sort of a, let us know what was happening because by the time music reached us, uh, if we were you know on our local radio, it'd be two years late. You know, we were always we were always out of fashion and out of style. But WLS kept us in tune. Uh, so it was a big part of my growing up as well. Now, let's talk Survivor. Uh, you're telling me. So, see, these are for listeners that just think that Survivor had the first song. It was a hit. Everything was hunky dory. I even thought that the songs uh, off the first and second record were, were big hits for you guys and you're telling me that you guys had some struggles okay so when was jimmy jameson who was from memphis when did he join the band and then and then when were like uh i mean there were so many hits that were cut after i guess or did they go back and uh, scotty brothers re-release some of the past no uh they didn't re-release anything it just stayed in in the catalog but the the sequence of that um steve is that uh, after the after the Eye of the Tiger album, there was a hard act to follow. We uh, we cut a, an album called Caught in the Game, but it was already clear that uh, Dave Bickler, the lead singer, that had taken us through uh, all the the first three albums, including Eye of the Tiger. He was suffering for uh, for throat ailments. Wow, and I know that. Had an operation, uh, you know, on the nodes, and it was pretty serious. And he came back too soon. And started singing too soon, and, and started losing his voice again. And the doctor says, "If you don't take a year off, you won't have a throat left." And at that point, we all had a decision to make. And Dave stepped aside, and we started holding auditions. And but I got a got a hint from a friend of mine named Frank Rand over at Epic Records. He said, "You know, Jimmy, there's a there's a group called uh, Cobra, and I think mm-hmm. they're ready to kind of break break up." And you got to hear this lead singer. He sent me a video of Jimmy Jameson. I go, holy, we got to bring him into town ASAP, you know. And and so we did. And he, he came, and he couldn't have been cooler and nicer and more polite. Reminded me of Elvis Presley, yeah. almost like a yes ma'am, no man kind of a guy. <laughs> very, very humble and uh, self-effacing. Right. And then he steps up the microphone, and we had this crappy PA system at this carpet warehouse where we used to rehearse. It sounded like crap until he hit the mic, and I go, what happened to this PA? It sounds great. Right. Because of, of his voice. Because he was great, and he is like a great song. You can you can almost uh, try to ki- try to make it sound bad, and you can't because it's great, right? You, you can't. He, he couldn't make it sound bad. Right. And, and the first song we, we uh, showed him was uh, Broken Promises, which 
ended up on the album that we we, we cut uh, soon after we inducted him into uh, Survivor. And then the second song was The Search Is Over. And right, I, love I it. sang it to him, and he sang, sang it back. And I go, you just made that a better song. <laughs> it was hmm. just incredible. The very next day, we told the other guys that auditioned uh, no, and we told Jimmy yes. And that that was a huge turning point where Survivor was able to prove that we were, we were not just a Rocky band, but we also had the firepower to, to do it without a movie, without a big, you know, Stallone connection, although we were thankful for that. We wanted to prove that we could do it without that. And that's, we, we went in the studio in, in L.A. at the record plant and cut Vital Signs, and it became um, a, a triple platinum record. Huge record. And that's when you heard, uh, that's when you heard I Can't Hold Back. Uh, right. That was the first single. And then uh, the next one was High on You, which went even bigger. And then the search is over, which went even bigger. And we we just released the, the fourth single, uh, first night, but we got interrupted by ourselves because we had just cut "Burning Heart" for Rocky Four, and that knocked <laughs> first night out of off of the track. But we didn't care at that point. No, no, you guys were rolling. We're talking to Jim Peterick, and at this point in his career, they are on fire, and which is always just so awesome to hear as an artist, and especially as an artist, Jim, that didn't have his first hit record until he was thirty-seven. It's really just amazing to hear the story. But you know what I take from you, and I know our listeners are, and this is what, when I met you, I take this extremely humble guy that, to me, that that makes you even greater than you are. I, I, I really mean that. And and this is one of those uh, sentimental times I have to get because this is, this is, to me, the most important thing. Building relationships and, and getting to know people and people that care about other people. Uh, you know, you were concerned. You were saying the song. I love when you go. The song was better when he sang it. Well, it all starts with the song, and you and I both know it. You got to have the person that delivers it or whatever. But even as a singer, so let's let's let's. I'll quit patting you on the back. But even as a singer, because I have heard you sing, um, how have you not been the? You know, because your voice is stellar. It's stellar. Still stellar. And from a guy who actually also had a big cyst on his throat, they were worse than nodules. I, I had them after uh, I Don't Have to Be Me to a Monday and Waiting on Joe. I'd written 80 songs that year, toured about 160 dates, and I had nothing left. And I mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the cyst had developed since I was early an early kid. I'd had throat issues, but I'd lost all mm-hmm. sorts of, uh, of uh, range. Uh, I had extreme rasp and uh, a lot of noise in my throat. And so this doctor finally said, Steve, I said, well, how long am I going to lose that thing, that grit in the voice that, you know, he goes, well, Steve, that's from within. And he goes, and the difference in back then and now, I was up and running in five days. It's almost like having knee surgery. They used to make you wait it out, right? And now they have these, you know, you go through speech therapy. And I was never singing right or talking right. And the talking was worse than the singing, especially all the interviews. But man, that was a that was a tough time for me because it held me out for a couple years of just trying to recuperate uh, and still try to uh, perform. And I had nothing left. I was dropping keys and songs. And then you know this great doctor with these wonderful hands, man, Doctor Mitchell from uh, from uh, uh, St. Thomas in Nashville, just fixed me. And uh, you know I was I was a bit a bit afraid. Um, we're talking to Jim Peterick and Steve Azar is once again uh, in in his own Mississippi way gone on a, a diversion of an interview, and I apologize for all the listeners because I'm not as important as the man I'm talking to. Uh, Jim, let's talk about 
uh, the the hits you wrote with the guys from 38 Special. I mean, like, you know, a lot of these oh. bands are so Southern you're talking about. Leonard Skinner, 38 Special. The list <laughs> goes on and on. Tell me the experience yeah. uh, about getting to know these guys and how that all went down. Well, it's funny. Uh, it's, it's funny because the South, uh, there, it is, there it is again, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, a real anecdote that I'm just going to lay out there is that I wrote a song. Well, first of all, um, John Kalodner looms very large in my history. Jack Ladner was the A&R man with uh, Atlantic Records when we signed with the Scotties, and he's the guy that signed us, actually. Uh, and uh, he, he's a legend. If, if you see the Aerosmith pump video, he's the guy in the wedding dress in the Hasidic beard. That's John Ladner. Right. Uh, and, and he's a legend, you know, and he could spot talent, he could spot synergy, and he signed Survivor, and I'm forever grateful for, for him for, for doing that. Uh, but then he noticed that I was, he knew me since the vehicle days. He was Jerry Greenberg's assistant and goes way back and knew that vehicle was really, uh, you know, something uh, out of the ordinary. And he never forgot the name Jim Peterick. So he was always eager to mentor my songwriting abilities. And he's the guy that put me together with 38 Special. And uh, I owe him a lot because he, he put me together with Sammy Hagar, uh, Henry Paul, another Another Southern, oh, yeah. uh, and most significantly of all, really, 38 Special. They they flew out to Chicago, uh, just Don Barnes and Jeff Carlisi, and uh, we sat at the kitchen counter in, in my place, in my home in Burr Ridge. Uh, we're in the same kitchen counter where I put the VCR up for Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, it's uh, a lucky so cat. I hope you've, I hope you've uh, that's a new trophy. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you know, I should have I should have taken that, that four mica to my next house, but I didn't. Anyway, uh, and you know, there was chemistry there from the beginning with me and Don and and Jeff just sitting there with with a few guitars. But there's always that period where you got to break the ice. You know, Jeff Carlisi saw a photo of me with the Ides of March, and he had no idea that I was that same guy that sang Vehicle. So immediately, I won points. You know, because he he loved that song. But finally, Don Barnes says, well, I got a title. And I'm the kind of writer, I love a good title. If I can write from a title, I got it, you know. And I said, well, what is it? He says, hold on loosely. And I go, wow. Great. Yeah, but, and then I said, but don't let go. And Jeff <laughs> says, well, I got a riff. Who knows? You know, it might kind of work, you know. And he goes, Holy mackerel! It sounded like the cars on steroids, you know. Right, right, and right. Yet it had that southern thing to it, and I started being the alchemist in the room, and I started putting the pieces together. And you see it all around you, good loving going bad. Right. Oh yeah, that sounds good. You know, <laughs> my mind goes back to the girl I me long years ago who told me, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, and I love it. We worked on that thing. My wife brought in the nachos, and we started eating the nachos and drinking a few beers. And by the end of the day, we had Hold On Loosely. It was supposed to go on the first Survivor record, but Ron Evison, our producer, said it's not us. It's too Southern. So gave it to um, 38 Specials manager, and they cut it immediately. I didn't even know they cut it until I heard it on the radio. <laughs> wow, you're kidding. So you didn't even know. Well, see, that's that's because things were going really well for you at this time in your life, and you didn't have to, you just couldn't pay attention to all the success you were having. I'm Steve Azar. We are with the great Jim Peterick. You are in a Mississippi Minute. Stand by. We'll be right back. The Super Talk app. Pop it in. Pop it in. 
and turn it on. Listen to your favorite shows anytime you darn well please. The Super Talk app. It's free. Download the Super Talk app now. 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 In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. I'm blessed to have the fabulous Jim Peterick, rock and roll legend, with me. We're talking about just so many great songs that he's penned and uh, incredible musician. Uh, and now I know where he gets it, straight from uh, uh, the, the gene pool, as I call it. Uh, let's talk about this. Our Mississippi and LSU, our old Miss and LSU listeners. Okay, look, the, I'm not big on whip, whipping onto Wikipedia because half my stuff's like what, but but okay, tell me, is this even true? Louisiana State, you got LSU game uh, with the Marching Tiger Band. It was an LSU Ole Miss game. Did you did you back back them up? I was there, man. That was one of the high points of my my later career. Uh, I think it was about 2011. I want to say maybe yeah. 10. And they invited me down there. Uh, the main guy with the uh, with the Mississippi uh, Louisiana Hall of Fame, and um, he said, "Man, this is crazy." He said, "But would you come down there and do Eye of the Tiger and Vehicle with three hundred piece marching band and lead the parade?" I said, "I'm there." <laughs> and it was uh, it was LSU against Ole Miss, and uh, on the Mississippi Minute, I hesitate to say that LSU did win that game. Well, that's all right. But, 2010. Who no, was our quarterback? I'm trying to think who our quarterback was. Oh, man. I, I can't you know, remember. Dude, I, I gotta, don't know. I, go I think the cheerleaders were – I was watching the cheerleaders far closer than the game. Yeah, well, that's the rock and roll in you, the rock and roller in <laughs> you. So let's talk about – one of the things I want to talk to you about was, you know, when I was touring with Bob Seger, I spent about eight months on the road with him. It was back 06, 07 on the Faces of the Promise Tour. And I remember Bob – Bob was talking about me uh, and him. I loved it that he that he used me in this quote, but it was with one of the the papers, one of the arenas uh, arena towns we were playing, and he talked about American Idol. And I know Bo Bice, if I remember right, didn't I think he did a, the vehicle? Didn't he do vehicle on a, on American Idol? Correct. He went all the way to number two on vehicle, man. And we're, I just talked to him yesterday. It's really funny. He's still a dear friend. And it, what's funny is that, you know, full circle moment, when I wrote Vehicle, uh, which I wrote it for trying to win my girl back, by the way. And, yeah, um, and you did. That worked out. Yeah. That worked out. Still but, working out. <laughs> uh, the, other, the other, yeah, still working uh, 46 years later. Yeah, I love it. Uh, the, the real funny thing is that I wrote that song with Blood, Sweat, and Tears in mind. We were very influenced by Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I'm talking about the Ides of March now. We had a great brass section. You know, and I didn't, there was no guarantee that we were going to have a hit with the song, Vehicle. So we, I, I, I went to see Blood, Sweat, and Tears with all the Ides of March, and I had a cassette of the demo of a Vehicle in my pocket. I go up to the, the corner, you know, the edge of the stage after the show, the incredible show. We were totally gobsmacked. I come up to David Clayton Thomas, and I said, oh, man, you're my hero, man. Would you take this tape and take a listen to the song? He basically said, he blew me off like in, in right. the most um, awful way. You know, <laughs> I'll never forget it. Uh, he was such a, um, you know, and it, it kind of made me realize uh, that I never want to be that. You know, right. never want to be that guy. But I, I, I'm not one to, to run from a fight. So I run upstairs and I gave the tape to Steve. Uh, of, of the of the band, the guitar player, <laughs> and Steve took it and graciously, and he said, um, "I will listen to this." You know, so 
flash forward, I didn't hear anything from Steve. We cut, in the meantime, we, we went down to Columbia Studios in Chicago and cut the song. Caught, caught lightning in a bottle. It goes to number one. We're on the road. We're in Atlanta. We run into Blood, Sweat, and Tears in the air, at the airport. And they're congratulating us on vehicle. I said, well, Steve, you know, that's the song I gave you six months ago. Wow. He I said, man, it. I knew... I knew I should have listened to that. He didn't song. listen, and the other guy, you know, that, which brings me back to the humbling part of, of getting to know you. The, the one one guy reminds me of a little bit of uh, John Bon Jovi, and the other one reminds me of Richie Sambora. So that's my experience. <laughs> I love Richie, man. <laughs> and so, and also, and and I can wrap this up by talking about how you, as a human being, that's the kind of guy you like. That's the kind of guy I like. And getting back to Bob Seger, I have to wrap all this up in a bow, or people think I'm crazy. Getting back to Bob Seger, he was talking about two things here one about american idol and they were asking him about it It was really hot at the time and he goes well just like my opening act with steve azar we're touring together we we he played and i played a lot live growing up and he compared that to what was missing a little bit in american idol so i took that as the biggest compliment because he was right and finally bo bice our son, who's graduating out in California, is a filmmaker and really good. The first thing he really ever worked on was Bo Bice's first music video. And he asked, and we were in Nashville, and he was 14 years old. And they go, why is this 14? Bo asked, why is this 14-year-old kid working on my video? And then when he saw his shots and his edits, he goes, I'm not going to say another word. So <laughs> so our wow. son, Strack, actually worked on his video. Uh, it was my buddy, Marcel, who's, who's a great singer-songwriter there in, uh, in Nashville. And uh, he asked him to come along because he, he had been working with him. He just loved his talent at a, as a young age. So another mentor in my son's life guys we have i mean I, jim i can't thank you enough for taking the time uh i know you're working with dennis DeYoung right now uh is there anything you can tell the listeners about when when that project's going to come out you know it'll probably be fall before it comes out i'm just guessing uh so i'm very excited about that in the eyes of march we're making a new album right now too 38 special i just got back from atlanta where we just ended up writing uh, five new songs for a new record wow so the magic's still there. It's uh, the dang right. The magic's still there, and I'll see you uh, in Chicago on May 18th. We're going to be doing a show together, and I can't wait to uh, to partake in that with for Casa uh, and our boy Bill Bella. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm Steve Azar. You have been with the legendary rock and roll star. Uh, just everything to do with rock and roll supremacy. My buddy Jimbo Jim Peterick. You have been in a Mississippi minute. You guys have a great day. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.